0: Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today is Arlene Fiore. Arlene is huge as a scientist, and I'll say more about that in a minute. But I want to say first, I was really excited about this one because I worked with Arlene for 10 years when she was a faculty member at Columbia till a couple years ago. So I just wanted to start with a reflection about her from my perspective as a former colleague. So this is a complicated job. You have to do a lot of different things. Teach, do research, raise funding, write papers, advise students and postdocs, do service and administration both inside and outside the university, get along with your cranky colleagues. And not everyone is good at all of them. But Arlene really is. She made it look easy. And by being here, she made it all easier for the rest of us. So I was really sad when she left. And among other things, this interview was just a chance to catch up with her. But okay. Arlene is an expert in atmospheric chemistry, air pollution, atmospheric transport, and climate. She uses numerical models to understand all the different factors that influence the concentration of various chemical species that affect human health, especially ozone. Her early work, which we talk about a lot in this interview, was about defining the quote, background ozone that sets the floor for air quality regulations, and especially understanding the role of long-range transport of ozone itself as well as its precursors in that. Her work has uncovered linkages between air quality and climate change, for example, by highlighting the role of methane, a greenhouse gas, in regulating ground-level ozone, a pollutant. And she's made important contributions on a range of other topics, including not just chemistry, but more lately, physical climate, including extreme events as well. From the beginning, Arlene's research has had direct implications for policy. Something that's always impressed me about her is how directly and enthusiastically she engages on that, working with a range of stakeholders to influence regulation and practice at the federal, state, and local levels. So we talked about how she got started engaging with all that when she was still a graduate student, and more recently, her participation in the NASA Health and Air Quality Applied Sciences team. Yet she does all this stakeholder-engaged policy work ...while remaining a highly productive basic researcher whose work contributes to fundamental understanding. So, she also talked about how important the concept of chemical modes of mathematical formalism... ...for understanding the way different species co-evolve on global scales in the atmosphere has been in her work. Arlene got interested in air pollution first as a kid in the Boston suburbs... ...partly because she suffered from bad asthma and that taught her that the air can be harmful... And we talk about how she got it to Harvard as an undergraduate and stayed through her PhD after that and why she didn't think beforehand that either of those things would happen. And she connects her own process of becoming a scientist through all this to the progress of women in science that was happening more broadly and visibly during that time, especially the Hopkins report that came out of MIT, Arlene's current employer around then. As you listen to Arlene talk, you might notice that she continually goes out of her way to mention the work and achievements of others, individually and in groups. And after we spoke, she thought of one more, so I told her I'd mention it here. Quote from her email, I should have had a shout out to the Earth Science Women's Network, which was an incredible source of support over the years. And this is something that consistently amazes me about Arlene. How she manages to be such a star by every individual focused metric that academia has, while at the same time being so humble and such a team player. So on that note, that's enough. Let's hear my conversation with Arlene Fiore. Thanks so much for doing this, Arlene. Nice to talk to you this morning.
1: It's great to be here, Adam. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start uh, at the beginning with where you're born.
1: Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess I was technically, um, well, I was born in Massachusetts. We'll leave it at that. And I grew up, I guess we moved when I was three to, a, from one suburb of Boston to another, but we, I grew
0: up about 10 miles north of Boston. Wait, why don't we want to name the suburbs? Is oh, we can name there? the
1: suburbs. Yeah. So I was born in Saugus, Massachusetts, and then we moved to Stone Stoneham, which is really where, where I, you know, from my, the time I can remember uh, where we lived.
0: Okay. And I seem to remember you have a bunch of brothers and sisters. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So I, I'm one of four girls. So there's me. Oh, and then oh, I had um, sisters who are twins that are three years behind me. And then I have uh, a baby sister who's 10 years behind me.
0: And um, how'd you get interested in science from the beginning? Or
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, no, I would say it was probably a more cir- circuitous path. Um, but, well, I don't know. Anyways, early on, I guess, um, I was kind of thinking... Thinking about where to start. And it, it may be worth mentioning that, um, in terms of my interest in air pollution, in some ways you could say that was pretty early. Uh, I think it was in fourth grade, we had this opportunity to write a letter. It was part, I don't know about opportunity, we were forced to by our teacher, I think, but uh, we had to write letters for this kids' rights program that was under Governor Michael Dukakis. And uh-huh. I wrote, and i don't know where i came up with this idea but um i do remember reading spending time with the encyclopedias that we had at home um, and and writing about air pollution and why we should care about it and that we we should be you know doing something to to clean up the air i honestly don't remember exactly what i wrote um but i ended up like being one of some number of kids across the state who then got to go and meet the governor and meet Bruce Schwegler who was like the local TV meteorologist um no kidding. so so that was kind of a neat opportunity early on
0: Before we go on tell me the age again where that happened
1: I think it was 4th grade so what that's probably about 10 11
0: and sorry, one more question before we proceed. Yeah. Was the air bad in Stoneham or this was like a conceptual issue for you?
1: So that's where I wish I could answer you, Adam. But I will say <laughs> that looking back, I mean, I remember playing outside in the summer and when Woburn was burning their trash, it smelled awful. And so, uh-huh. You know, which was something that we all just kind of complained about. <laughs> Sorry, now I'm wondering if I am going to, you know, these are memories. I, I don't know how solid they are. But um, I guess the other thing I should mention is I had childhood asthma. And so I was pretty sick as a kid. Like when I was okay. four, I was in at Children's, was on medication pretty much my whole uh, childhood. And so I think that was the connection that like I was, okay. was kind of making that link between, you know, stuff in the air can, can make kids sick.
0: So maybe fourth grade-ish, you had the memory of asthma and got to meet the governor and the meteorologist on TV talking about air pollution. And then the next thing.
1: So then in high school, which I thought was just what every school did. And I realized later on that this was probably pretty unusual. But our ninth grade science curriculum was earth science. and mm. um, And that was, you know, part of the kind of. Honors track in high school. So, I, you know, everybody took earth science. And I had a fantastic teacher who had a okay. planetarium. That was really cool to get to go in the planetarium and kind of understand where the constellations were and what to look for look for in the night sky. I remember, you know, learning about the different properties of minerals. And he had a field trip to the beach where we got to look at rocks. Except that that field trip was in December and it was frigid. I remember thinking like, oh, it would have been so much better if we could have done this in the warmer weather. Uh, but I remember it, right? So that that got me excited, I guess, about geology and, and earth science generally. And then when I was thinking about college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I I was really had broad interests. I liked history. I liked, um, I mean, I knew I liked math and science, Um, liked reading English, not sure that I loved writing. Um, Although I would say that it wasn't like I minded writing. And then the other, so yeah, so basically when I was thinking about college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so the things that I started thinking about, though, were uh, really probably more geared towards engineering. And that was because my dad was an engineer. Oh, okay, uh, so, I should have yeah. asked that.
0: So tell me about your folks' occupations.
1: I guess, yeah, there's maybe a couple of things I'll say there. One is that I grew up with a very strong work ethic and sort of, uh, my, my parents both placed a really high value on education. My dad was the first in his family to go to college. Uh, my mom, I guess technically was the second cause her brother went before her, but they both put themselves through college. And then I remember when I was little, they were first, my dad went to night school to, to get a master's. Um, mm-hmm. and then my mom for a long time, cause you know, there were, she was taking care of us too. Um, uh, but went back to, um, to school for a degree in accounting. And in fact, she did like all of the requirements except the two years of full-time experience to be a CPA. And so my dad worked for uh, an environmental engineering company. He was a structural engineer, but uh, his job took him all over the world. So he was Mm. traveling a lot and uh, very interesting places. Like uh, he went to Saudi Arabia once. I remember him going to Thailand. And that was probably when I was in middle school. I think he went like five times. And there was a colleague from Thailand who I remember he brought over to our house when he was in the US. And so that was, you know, really, really neat. He also did a lot of wastewater treatment plants. And so he, it's funny because we, you know, drive different places and, Kind of, he'd be pointing out, oh, there's the wastewater treatment plant. There's, you know, that I worked on that one. And so he actually was involved in the Deer Island project in Boston, which was like a massive effort to clean up Boston Harbor and actually have um, have the the wastewater treatment happening mm. uh, out on Deer Island before the wastewater went into the harbor. So yeah, so I guess I saw all of these things that that my dad was doing and seemed like, hey, engineering seems like it could be a lot of fun. It could be a way to travel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was looking for for schools where I had that option. But I also knew that I really liked humanities too and was taking French and I liked language. And so I just, I was really probably targeting liberal arts schools, but ones that also had the option of, of engineering. So looking back, I was pretty serious about track and cross country in high school, but not good enough that like I could run at like a division one school. So I was kind of trying to find places where I could run and do all these things and in the end you know I applied a bunch of places and I my mom had really wanted to see if I could get into Harvard and so I applied mm-hmm. there and I vividly remember telling her she was wasting her $50 application fee because there was no way I, you know I was going to get in and it, it wasn't the school for me and all this And uh, lo and behold, I ended up getting in and I got really amazing financial aid. And um, I went there and I spoke with a track coach and there was no way that I was going to be competitive, but he sold the school to me in a way. He just said that, you know, the people that you meet here and the relationships that, that you'll forge will be lifelong, and not that Harvard is necessarily a huge engineering school, but they do have engineering, and so I I thought I was going to do environmental engineering. And the reason I bring that up is because in the end, I did neither of those things. Um, I did start training my first year for fall training for track and ended up with a stress fracture and after that realized mm. that I could actually run just to run and so I'd often trade like run with the track team when they were having their easy practices that kind of thing because I had made some friends in the fall training program and then I started environmental engineering and then in my sophomore fall I my advisor had told me kind of my course load was reasonable and I was absolutely loving my computer science class, but it was consuming all of my time. And it was it was a requirement. And I was also taking uh, math and, and physics classes at the time and started realizing if I don't stop spending all my time on computer science, I'm not going to do well. And so then I started realizing that I kept flipping to like at that time, right, it was prints, like the course catalog. And I kept looking at the Earth and planetary science classes and thinking these just sound really interesting and really fun. And I think I'd really rather try to find room in my schedule to take more of these. And so I ended up very quickly dropping the computer science class and changing my major. And so I bring that up because then that next spring, my sophomore spring, I took uh, introduction to atmospheric chemistry with Daniel Jacob, who is an amazing teacher. And uh, long story short, ended up becoming my PhD advisor as well. But it took me like all semester to get up the courage to go talk to him and ask, because I had a friend who was working with a different atmospheric chemistry professor and kept saying, like, you should just ask, like, he might be able to get you a job. And I guess the The sort of personal part of that is we had this amazing opportunity in my high school where we had a savings bank in the cafeteria. And so you could work during lunchtime. And so I had been working at the bank and then they'll hire you even as a high school kid to work in the summer. And so I was doing that. But that summer after my first year of college, I did not get full-time hours. And I was also really not that excited about doing that job anymore, and I was like, it would be so great if I could actually get a job doing research because um, mm. I'd like to try that. So I finally go up and talk to Professor Jacob about whether there were any opportunities to do atmospheric chemistry research. And the first question he asked me is, "What's your computer programming experience?" And so of course, of course. my stomach drops, and I'm like man <laughs> so I told him well you know I I was going to take this class and I started it but I ended up dropping it and I told him my story and he, he then the next question he asked me is well did you drop it because you were like scared of it or didn't like it or and I said no actually I'd really love to to learn how, how to program like that i, I I hope to, you know, have that opportunity at some point. And he said, so if I were to hire you and you could spend some time this summer learning how to program, would you be willing to do that? And, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, you're going to pay me to teach myself something? This is amazing. And I guess the other thing I should mention is I, I, I did fine in his class, but I was not a superstar. It was, you know, I was not performing super well, but I was pretty excited that he didn't seem too concerned about that either, that he was mm. willing to give me this chance. And so mm. I think that's something that for me has always stuck with me that somebody was willing to give me a chance, right? Mm. And see see if I could do the job.
0: I don't know Daniel very well. I've met him a few times, but one thing we know about him is that he has the largest group I've ever seen of anyone in the field and always has. So presumably His ability in terms of picking people out, students and so on, he's probably the most experienced person there is. And, you know, he must have known what he was. I mean, obviously, in your case, he did know what he was doing.
1: I feel like I went through his group at the absolute perfect time because his group was not that large when I was there. And if you can believe this, that summer that I worked, he wanted me to check in with him at five o'clock every day. Wow. Yeah. When was this? This was summer of 1995. And he just included me in his group. I went to group meetings. I think at some point I got to help out with a freshman seminar class he was leading or something.
0: So how many people were checking in with him at five every day or just that was just special for you?
1: Yeah, it was just me. So he hired actually there were two of us. You may know Jeff Yin was the other undergrad. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Yeah. He, he
0: he was at Washington when I was there, I think.
1: Yes, yeah. that, that makes sense. So Jeff and I I mean I think I think at that point Danielle had already hired Jeff and you know, in his wisdom he realized that if he had two people and, and Jeff already knew more than I did, and so we could work together and kind of figure some things out. But yeah, our our job was basically organizing ozone air quality data that at that time Uh, I think we must've gotten it shipped on a hard drive. And at that time it was like before there was any standardization. So there was so much data cleaning, unit conversion, all that kind of stuff that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was, that was my job. And we started out actually in using S plus this, you know, one language. And, um, I wrote, a code that is actually how I met a different professor in the department, Steve Wafsey, because mm-hmm. he had the server sitting on his desk when I crashed it. And so he <laughs> found me <laughs> and said, let me guess, you're writing a lot of loops. And I was like, yeah, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was so kind about it. He was so kind about it, right? And Well, so, well
0: he'd surely done it himself, or he wouldn't I'm have known that. I'm sure. <laughs> and, but he was
1: so kind about it, and he said, okay, um, I think we're going to have to figure out a different way for this to happen. And that was when you know I went and talked to Danielle, and he said, okay, um, well, how do you feel about learning a different programming language, Fortran? <laughs> so I was like, sure. <laughs>
0: Which still has loops, but maybe it's uh, yeah, it was fast, just much faster more efficient, and much more thrashy. efficient. Yeah.
1: yeah. So anyways, that was my, my first experience with, uh, with research. And I loved it and ended up asking if I could stay on and do a. I guess at that point I was going into my junior year. So I was probably still, still just working as a paid you know, intern or whatever during the academic year, which also was much better than the previous jobs I had done on campus so then it turned into a senior thesis. The other sort of turning point for me was in my senior year fall when I was starting to apply to jobs, um, different places and, you know, kind of foolishly applying at engineering companies, even though I didn't have an engineering degree, like who's going to hire somebody like that anyways. So I also started applying to consulting jobs. And I was also applying to fellowships to go abroad because I had really wanted to study overseas as an undergraduate. And at that time, uh, Harvard was really adamant that you couldn't possibly get an education that's better than here in Cambridge. And so they didn't have Mm -hmm. study abroad programs. That's all changed now. So I was applying for fellowships. Anyways, and I guess I knew that I probably wanted to go to grad school because I I did take the GREs. I was also, I think at that point, kind of toying with maybe I should think about law school. I knew that I did not, I was not cut out for medicine like that was I I actually embarrassingly had fainted in science class in fourth grade when we were Mm. feeling our pulse so I knew that this was never going to be something that I could do
0: (laughs) feeling the pulse huh okay that's that's really uh, yeah
1: I've since gotten much better I'm like I'm I'm okay with with blood and all that now but yeah so I was meeting with Jerry Gardner who was a scientific programmer Um, I think she had been for many years over at the Smithsonian the Center for Astrophysics up on Garden Street at Harvard. And at some point she started doing scientific programming with Daniel Jacob and his group. And uh, she and I had, I guess I'd probably been getting advice from her just on coding and that kind of thing. But, you know, she kind of pulled me aside one day and said, hey, um, just wanted to ask you what you're doing after after you graduate. And, you know, I told her what I was doing. And then she she asked me, so what are the highest degrees that your parents have? And I said, oh, they, you know, they both have master's degrees. And mm-hmm. she said to me, do you think you can't do a higher degree than your parents have? <laughs> I just kind of was like, "Um, oh, no, I don't think that's it. But I, I was like, I have loans. I, you know, so I, I don't, I, I need to pay off my loans before I even think about going back to school. Mm. And and she said to me, "Okay, well you need to know that if you apply to a PhD program, you get paid to go to school and you can defer your loans." And I mean, it was like my mind was blown. Again, this concept of mm. like being paid to get to be a student and and to learn was just mm. so exciting to me and
0: But wait a, second, wait, a second, wait a second, wait a second. I understand that many people don't know this, but how come nobody had told you this before you're hanging around a group full of PhD students and postdocs and whatever, and nobody, nobody ever said that to you?
1: I I think I just didn't. I just assumed. Right. (laughs) And I, yeah, I really didn't know.
0: Um, I mean, this is a a kept, you know, this is a well-kept secret in much of the world, but but you okay anyway i yeah, know. Well, it, it, you
1: know when you ask that question it, it is it's like how did i not know that and either i was oblivious or just really never had that conversation but jerry was the one who who really made it clear to me that like this this was a th- this was a different system than what i thought it was and yeah and so i remember like honestly that was the first the first night that i remember like i could not sleep like my mind was just racing and, and because then it turned quickly from like well could I get in? You know, I would have to ask Danielle if he'd be willing to recommend me, and does he think I have what it takes, and all of this. And I remember calling my mother. I don't know whether it was that day or the next day, but it just kind of saying, like, can you believe this? You can actually get paid to go to school, you know. And she was like, Well, why wouldn't you apply? And so I think this was like November, and I thought I was too late, and I went and talked to Danielle and. I mean, I think he was really excited that I would be, you know, that because clearly he had, had given me this opportunity and opened this career path for me. And so he was super supportive and immediately told me, no, you're not too late. They're not due for a couple of weeks. Are you kidding me? You have plenty of time. And of course he would write and he just, he basically told me like which programs I should think about, who to contact. I mean, he was amazing. So I guess then I ended up, as I mentioned, staying in the group, I think, There were lots of reasons for that, but in hindsight, I mean, I'm really glad I did. I had a lot of people who, you know, were encouraging me to go somewhere else and get a different experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also felt like, Mm -hmm. well, as an undergraduate, I was doing a lot of data analysis and working with one particular data set, and you know, I knew this group did modeling, and I knew that seemed super exciting, and Mm. um, I hadn't gotten to experience that yet and so i felt like it would be it would be a new experience and i also knew that i really enjoyed working with danielle and to me that just seemed really important to have that relationship and know that i was going to be comfortable and happy
0: so first of all let's take a step back so when you were applying to harvard some years behind where we are now in the story um you mentioned that you told your mom you're wasting your 50 bucks (laughs) You know, I'll never get in. But then you got in with financial aid and everything. So clearly, you were must have been an excellent student in high school. Plus, you were a runner and all these other things. Clearly, you you underestimated your own, um, you know, uh, marketability to the admissions committee like a lot. And I'm just wondering if you have any reflection now on how that happened. I mean, so most kids that go to Harvard, I think, are kids that were trying, you know, really wanted to get into Harvard and. We're thinking a lot about their what their file looks like. And it's of course, it's hard to get in and anybody can have the reaction of, you know, it's hard to get in. And so a lot of anybody's odds are low, even if they're a great student and all those things. So was it just that or looking back on it, do you think like because then again with the PhD, it's a get, like there's, hearing your whole story, my reaction is that at every stage so far, Arlene is underestimating her, her uh, you know, pot- not potential, but. Your your attractiveness to whoever it is that's hiring you, you know, and and I'm just wondering if you want have any thoughts on that, looking back on it.
1: Yeah, so I, th- I think there's a couple things, but I will say that at that time, and I don't know if this is still the case, but but it was not uncommon for my high school for like the top student or two to be going to Harvard. So, and mm-hmm. I I think that Harvard really did take more Massachusetts. I know they did because there you can look at the statistics, right? There's there's a higher percentage of Massachusetts kids who, who, who get it or go there, get in, I don't know exactly what the statistics are, mm-hmm. but then other mm-hmm. places in the country. So I definitely had that in my favor. Um, but I, so I think because of that, though, I was kind of also, that means I was seeing who had gone to Harvard from my school. So and in that sense, maybe I didn't feel like I was quite at that at that level. But my year, they actually ended up taking two of us that got in. That was interesting, too. I think i also didn't realize that at that time um how important it was from maybe more of the broader perspective of having females interested in in stem fields and i i think i also Mm. all through my career really have Mm. benefited from i was kind of i feel like that generation who benefited from the
0: Mm. you know
1: generation or two ahead of us who really Mm. opened doors
0: i see so it was a little bit of I don't look like the professor kind of thing?
1: I think so. Also, just the stereotypes of scientists that I think now there's a lot of effort to, to break. I, and and yeah. Um, yeah, just not really seeing people like me. Honestly, part of what I was excited about with the computer science class also was there was a female professor. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't take a single class in my major with a female professor. There had been been a female professor wow. in the department um, who ended up leaving. I think, you know, that's all changed a lot. I mean, my classes, I also benefited in that department from having really small classes in college once I got into my, mm-hmm. my major classes. Um but I had at least one class. And again, it was only probably a handful of students, but I was the only female.
0: Yeah, MIT didn't. It was the same. We had one woman professor and I did not take a class from her because she was an oceanographer. And uh, yeah, we had another instructor who taught, um, who taught but wasn't a proper, you know, tenured faculty. So yeah, it, it, it was. Right. That was the time. Yeah, there weren't many.
1: It's yeah. And there were
0: already okay. a lot. There were already a lot of it coming up through the PhD students yes. like that. Yes. But, um, and many of the ones I was in school with are still in the field. So it was a moment So you looking back on it. You can see that what you're saying is true. It was a time when change was getting started a, in a way that in a bigger way than whatever had happened before.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. And actually, yeah. So there's kind of two things I'd like to call out. One is that and Danielle's group. Uh, we had the benefit of really strong female scientists in that group. So Jennifer Logan, Chlorissa Stavakovsky, um, Mm. and so... I really, I think that really affected me too, like being a group meeting and seeing these, these women who were amazingly Mm. smart and cut straight to the heart of the matter. And Mm. I mean, I think we always felt like if we got through group meeting, we were okay to go out and give a talk elsewhere. You know, it was like, Uh in some ways it was like a safety net of, right. You just knew that you had, we had the benefit of these amazing scientists, like who were interested in what we were doing and providing all these thoughts and suggestions and feedbacks and not going to hold back if we were being stupid, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. And I will also say, because I, I didn't ever go to your group meetings, of course, but I did go to those Friday seminars, the fr- the atmospheric chemistry <laughs> seminars, and they were pretty, I remember them being pretty brutal a couple they times. <laughs>
1: they were. I mean, not,
0: not nasty, but just no. some very tough questions for, for yes. the speakers. <laughs> yes. And Danielle, did he say to you, you know, the standard, because when people... When I get undergrads who want to continue, even if I if I want to recruit them, I still tell them, you know, the advice is you should probably leave. But there's exceptions and reasons why you might not want to, or why this might not be the thing to do. I mean, in other words, I want them to make the choice knowing right. full well that. So it sounds like you did know that, but
1: I don't know that I got that advice from Danielle. Honestly, I felt like it was more external. I see. people who are commenting on that. Um, and I mean, there's I am not alone. There are a number of undergraduates who uh, took Danielle's class and ended up hooked. Uh, in fact, I have a colleague who calls it the gateway drug to atmospheric chemistry at Harvard.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I can see
1: that. <laughs> a class. Um, anyways, yeah. So I was just also going to say that I, so I was a grad student when um, the the famous MIT Women in Science report hit the news.
0: Oh, right.
1: Right. So that That was was a little bit
0: after my time. Yeah, Yeah,
1: that was really um, I mean, it really affected all of us a lot. It was, you know, I mean, just we were so, I think, grateful to these women who Called to light the the inequities.
0: Maybe in case anybody's listening who doesn't know what happened, it was actually a long time ago.
1: Oh, do you right. want to say I a few
0: words of what, what what happened?
1: I just actually read the book by the reporter who broke the story. Um, it's it's called The Exceptions, and I'm embarrassed that I am not going to come up with the reporter's name. That's um, okay. But, and actually, I'm probably going to get the history wrong, so (laughs) I'm a little bit, but basically, what happened was there was a group of female faculty in the sciences at MIT who had started trading stories and kind of started realizing that they were all experiencing some similar um, issues, I would say, within, in terms of the resources that they were allocated. So, the size of their groups, the equipment in their labs, and realized that it seemed like there was something maybe more built into the system or something that was preventing mm-hmm. the the female faculty from having the same opportunities as their male colleagues um, yeah and I think that goes from everything from like access to like leadership positions and 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 resources for their labs and so space,
0: I remember lab space yes. being a big
1: yeah. Yes. And, you know, it's really interesting because now being at MIT, right, MIT, I mean, you, you've you spent time there prides itself on everything is data driven and, and yes. you know, love numbers. And so these women did their homework and, and pulled a bunch of numbers together and uh, wrote a report. And I, I don't remember all of the details of how that all came to be or at what stage in that whole process it ended up becoming national media, but it did hit the news and it ended up making a huge impact, I think, in in academia across the the country.
0: Yeah, it did. And I just Googled it. So the book is by Kate Zernicki. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, Zernicki, uh, something approximately like that. The exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the fight for women in science. Yeah, I remember it, and I remember when this came out. It was big news, and we should probably say this was years before Me Too or anything, and it had nothing to – I sort of remember it really not having anything to do with that. It wasn't a sexual harassment story, as I recall. It was just a resource issue, and yeah. At the time, that was the way it was written in the news was like they had all the data, and so the MIT administration was like, okay. I guess you're right. That was the... I mean, as I recall, MIT responded reasonably well to it once they... That's I right. Mean, post facto, I mean, once they did it.
1: Yeah. Right. It just felt like these you know, doors were being opened and kind of barriers were really, really coming down. Were you
0: surprised by it or were you not surprised by it? I mean, just by the actual facts of it.
1: I don't think I was surprised.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think I was just always so in awe of these women who were facing all these challenges and yet still were amazingly, amazingly successful scientists.
0: Right. I mean, but in some sense, like, the surprise thing is interesting because in some sense, it sounds like even they didn't really know until they did the research. You know what I mean? They must have had a feeling that something was wrong. But, like, you know, in other words, you sort of had to be a little surprised because... Oh, that's great. Yeah, I really the-
1: was surprised in the sense that, like, it was so unequal and that, that it was clearly right. shown. Um, yeah, but again, I'm coming for I was coming from a department at the time where the senior female scientists were weren't faculty, right? Right, like right, right. kind of always questioning, like, why aren't they faculty? <laughs> you know?
0: Right. No, I'm interested in these issues of when you, I've had a, a few, yeah. I mean, we're not going to, I don't need to go into my stories, but I'm interested in these things of when you find out something bad has happened that you didn't really know the details of, It's possible to have a reaction, a lot of reactions of you knew or you didn't know, but sometimes you didn't really know, but you sort of do. So you could you could say, well, I didn't know all those facts and all those details, but somehow yet figures given everything that else that I see around. I
1: I think that's a little more how my fellow female grad students and I were reacting was like,
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, it was like, okay, like somebody actually is aware now that that there's a reason and there's a clear there's clear evidence that that there are barriers and maybe that's why, why we don't have any female faculty in our department or
0: many. So these, the the people, the professors who wrote the report obviously were, I don't know if they had tenure or not. They were, I don't remember if they were all senior or junior, but they were on the MIT faculty. But in other words, what you're saying is, if I understand right, like whatever issues they were documenting were, it's likely to suspect that similar reasons had driven other women out of the profession entirely.
1: Right. That's kind of what we I think how how I was thinking about it. Although right, it's like so many years later now, it's hard to really get back into, you know,
0: well but it was a watershed moment. I mean, for the yeah. whole for the whole all of science in the United States and maybe even globally, it was a big moment. I mean, it was very memorable because it was you know, they documented it in a way it hadn't been done before and it was at a top institution and the institution couldn't I don't know if they couldn't, they didn't, you know, try to get out of it or you know so right. it really was a big deal so it's worth right. trying to excavate it a little bit anyway okay so this happened so maybe we should then talk about your time as a graduate student and your thesis oh and sure whatever else was going on at that time
1: yeah um
0: okay it, let's start with what your thesis was about oh,
1: okay sure um so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so this is it's funny i feel like there's a lot of um just I remember I remember one thing that Danielle said to me. I remember many things that he said to me, but one thing that that has always stuck with me is that there's a lot of serendipity in science, right? It's kind of mm. like the timing of of when you happen to be working on something and who you meet yep. and collaborations and all of that. And so we started out and he was really thinking a lot. Um, I think, I think there was a, a 99 GRL paper that he had written about the potential influence of increasing Asian emissions on air quality over the U S and this was really a growing area of interest. It was becoming Mm -hmm. recognized that um, ozone, which is kind of my favorite molecule, I guess. uh, Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much you want me to step back and say, so ozone is the major constituent of ground level smog. It's also an important greenhouse gas in the upper Mm -hmm. troposphere. And from an atmospheric chemistry perspective, it also is an important oxidant in that it Contributes uh, through atmospheric chemistry to another really important oxidant. So, it kind of helps clean the air of. So, it's a pollutant at ground level, but in sort of a lot of the troposphere, right? The lowest layer, layer of the atmosphere, it contributes a lot to our the atmospheric's ability to cleanse itself of pollutants and reactive greenhouse gases like methane. Ozone's also in the stratosphere where it protects us from UV radiation. It's present at much higher concentrations. And so these substances that um, deplete the ozone layer, some of their replacements, they react in the troposphere because of this chemistry that ozone in the troposphere helps kick
0: off. Okay. Mm-hmm. so And it has three oxygens.
1: Of, three oxygen atoms. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, and so, yeah. So, so back to like the context, I guess, of, you know, the Asian economy has been industrializing. Pollution there is is increasing. Um, this molecule of ozone, what makes it so fun and why I've spent so much of my career studying it, I guess, is that um, I like to say when I teach that it wears many different hats. And so, you know, depending on where where we are in the atmosphere, it's also controlled kind of by different processes. And so, if you're in the polluted boundary layer, a molecule of ozone, for instance, summertime, Eastern U.S. conditions. Only going to hang around in the atmosphere for say a day or two before it's either lost to chemistry or lost to deposition to the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you can loft ozone, such as for instance during convection uh, into the colder, um, the middle troposphere away from the surface, it can hang around for a couple of weeks or even in the winter when photochemistry in the northern you know polar area especially is not happening but um, but in the mid-latitudes it's slow and so it can hang around for months and so this opens the door to transport around the globe and I mm-hmm. just found this fascinating maybe I should also I'll just kind of shout out to Michael Prather as well who's a colleague at UC yeah. And when I was an undergraduate, I got to go to one of his talks. He had just published this, was was publishing these papers on this idea of chemical modes.
0: I remember that. Yep. I remember. I heard that talk, too, somewhere. OK,
1: so we might have been in the same room. At that, if, uh, it depending.
0: might have been. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I was so excited about that concept because it was like, that's why I took linear algebra. And man, I wish I had realized when I took <laughs> linear algebra that this kind of work was made possible by it. So, so this was sort of the, the context of kind of where I was coming from into my my Ph.D. You know, I guess like most uh, many students in my first year, we were, I was writing fellowship applications. And so we decided that I would apply to the National Science Foundation and that we were going to conduct this, what we thought was kind of an academic exercise of just asking the question, what would the ozone concentrations be? in the absence of uh, anthropogenic sources, and also like think more about quantifying how much ozone is transported from, for instance, Asia to the US or the US to Europe. This term mm-hmm. that ends up uh, becoming used as intercontinental transport is kind of one way that we think about it. So in other words, just how much, how much are we all one atmosphere and kind of breathing air in one place that um, has pollution that was either formed elsewhere or because of emissions that happened elsewhere uh, formed during transport. And so that's probably another important point, I suppose, mm. in case anybody listening is uh, is not in atmospheric chemistry, that ozone is not emitted directly. It forms through chemistry in the atmosphere. And so that also makes it really interesting and, and challenging. Um, and there's some nonlinear chemistry involved. And so the other thing that was happening in the group at the time is that they were starting to collaborate with uh, climate modelers at GIS to ask yeah. questions about how do some of these short-lived air pollutants, notably ozone, impact uh, the climate system. And so Loretta Mickley, who's now a group leader in, in the Harvard group, the Harvard Atmospheric Chemistry group, mm-hmm. uh, she came in as a postdoc, uh, probably when I was still an undergraduate. And that was her project. She was basically working in the GIS model and looking at climate responses. And so I remember and having- was
0: Prather still at GIS then? He was oh, okay. not. Okay. But he was.
1: He had know, been. He was yeah, at UC Irvine yeah. at this
0: point. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. Sorry, Um, didn't mean to. That's okay.
1: Yeah. So I was also fascinated by these kind of couplings, I guess, just generally, whether they're chemically driven or kind of chemistry and climate together. And so, right. So my thesis ended up being on uh, this attempt to quantify background ozone. And Mm. at some point, reasonably early on, um, Danielle was—he was also doing doing work uh, supported by EPA and. We had gotten asked, and I ended up being the student who was working on the project a bit, which was to look at the combination of impacts of changes in different emissions on climate, where climate really we were just calculating radiative forcing and air quality. And so in other words, are there things that we could be doing that would be beneficial both from a a climate perspective and an air quality perspective? I guess, let me talk first about the background ozone issue, because it turned out that you know, we thought we were doing something that was scientifically very interesting. What we did not realize was how relevant to policy it was going to end up being. And it turned out that this concept of background was relevant to setting the National Ambient Air Quality Standard for ozone, because mm-hmm. by law, you cannot set a standard that is unattainable. Right. right and so right, then it right. becomes extremely important to understand what how how much can we change ozone by emissions within our country versus You know what is the ozone that would be there naturally i guess that's something i also didn't mention yet that there are natural precursor emissions to ozone as well as anthropogenic and so this question of quantifying anthropogenic versus natural what's within the u.s what's coming from outside become really important and of course the u.s has agreements with canada and mexico so there's ways you could potentially negotiate for international transport The U.S. is also uh, part of this uh, Convention on Long-Range Transboundary Air Pollution, under Mm. which you have uh, agreements to... That was really uh, predominantly motivated for acid rain type work. Um, And so trying to reduce acid rain, but then they had a, a protocol that was focusing on ozone and other pollutants as well. And so I ended up kind of part of this both national and international kind of policy community by the nature of the questions that I was working on. And so, Danielle was amazing. And he would bring me to these meetings happening at EPA, even though I wasn't presenting, which in hindsight, Mm. it was just such a learning opportunity for me. Mm. Um, And I also got to go to some meetings that were precursors to what became this task force on hemispheric transport of air pollution. Um, at that time, it was Terry Keating at US EPA and Frank Dentoner um, at the JRC in Italy who were, were leading that group. And so I feel like as a student, I got to start becoming part of these communities that then led to a lot of opportunities later in, in my career as well.
0: And these communities means means sort of policy.
1: It's, it really was a community as of as scientists them. who were trying to come together and coordinate the science that needed to be done to ground policy in. So it was assessment mm-hmm. report kind of work, um, both nationally, the way the EPA uh, is required. I think it's every five years to review the scientific criteria upon which its standards are based. And as part of that, there's a series of documents, one of which is like reviewing the science um, Of Mm -hmm. the the standard. And so, yeah, so I guess I can just mention that at that time, the EPA had just been assuming that background ozone was 40 parts per billion. So that's just a measure of concentration of ozone in the atmosphere. And what we were showing is that it's not constant. It varies in space and in time. And so that was was a fair bit of, of my PhD work.
0: I remember this. I mean, you were still this was still part of your agenda when you got here as I, as I recall
1: yeah, exactly, and I, I still I still have bits of work in that area it's, but, it it yeah,
0: but just a science question, so just so I understand the the way, if I understood correctly from what you said, but I want to make sure I got it right, the background doesn't mean no anthropogenic source at all. it means no anthropogenic source within the u s or wherever the regulatory boundaries are?
1: So I'm laughing because that is an excellent question. No, that is an excellent question. And it, that definition of what the, from a policy standpoint, what background is, has changed over time. They've changed how mm. they define it. And so um, there's now different flavors of backgrounds. So what you just defined is what's referred to as U.S. background ozone. What would the background concentration be in the absence of U.S. anthropogenic emissions? We have North American background ozone, which is what would it be in the absence of North American anthropogenic emissions? Yeah. And at the time that I was a grad student, uh, it was simply referred to as policy relevant background, PRB. Um, And I believe that that was the North American background definition that we were using. Although, honestly, at this point, I'd probably have to go back and and double check that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I think it was. So I'll just say, I guess maybe just to finish up that line of thought, in my final year of grad school, there was some meeting that uh danielle couldn't go to he had a conflict and so he sent me Mm. and (laughs) i mean this happened every now and then but this one was turned out to be an incredibly contentious meeting because Mm. i think neither of us really understood i certainly didn't what it was it was called like I think at that time the policy, the science behind the National Ambient Air Quality Standard for ozone document was called a criteria document, and it was an authors meeting where they bring in scientific, you know, people from the science community, from industry, from wherever who are going to contribute to this report. And so I was asked to present, and I remember I presented. It was the first time I think that I actually presented some work that wasn't my own because we wanted to represent a little bit more broadly mm-hmm. uh, some of the work that was going on. And so I gave my talk, and I was under an enormous amount of fire from a consultant, um, in particular, who was work kind of did work for EPA, also did work for industry, but clearly did not want to see that background level lower. this 40 ppb and our work was strongly arguing that it it was lower and so it turned into this whole discussion of how much ozone is coming from the stratosphere because that's natural and Mm -hmm. if you have a lot of stratospheric ozone making its way to the surface well then we can't possibly clean up you know we can't possibly get the background lower than you Mm -hmm. know some level and so the argument was all about what is that level well your model how well is it resolving stratosphere and you know i think the best thing in hindsight that I did there was if I didn't know something, I was just like, I'm going to, I'm not entirely sure. And, you know, I'll get back. But thankfully I I did understand, you know, at least what was going on in our model in terms of how the the stratosphere was represented and where Mm -hmm. the the pitfalls were and all that. And so um, anyways, it was super contentious. And um, I came back from that meeting, honestly, pretty scarred and i remember talking to danielle and just saying like i don't know (laughs) like i think we need to soften what we're saying because you know it it, anyways that writing that paper turned out to be really really challenging because i had been there experiencing this pushback and Mm -hmm. um and i felt like i kind of wanted to tiptoe more um and you know, Danielle was like, No, we we should be strong about this. We should anyways. So that was a whole interesting experience. But at some point he got a draft of what what was being written. And at that point he actually came down to my office, I remember, and he was like, What is going on here? There's statements like we believe, like that this is not science, you know <laughs> And, and I, th- I think he finally understood like the kinds of criticism and, and, and just sort of the arguments that I was, I was dealing with. And he said to me, okay, okay, now I understand a little more about what's going on here. And I, in some sense, I think I just felt that validation that like, I think he thought I came back a little bit hysterical from the meeting um, mm-hmm. and, you know, and admittedly, right, it really was, I was a student, it's not like I had a whole ton of experience. I certainly didn't right. understand the context that I was, I was in, but it did, it did help me feel better that I think he also didn't like, th- this was kind of a learning experience for him too. And since then, of course, you know, we've both had many opportunities to be involved in some of these discussions and have a clear, <laughs> clearer sense yeah. of, of what the needs are. and. Um, but actually, I, I remember going to different. Uh, I think it must have been a CASAC, uh, which is the Clean Air Science Advisory Council that kind of provides input to to EPA's decisions and things. I remember going to a meeting with Danielle there at that time, but where we again, I was I was presenting our work, and there were lots of contentious discussions. And so all this to say that I kind of went through a phase after that where I was okay with with maybe working on some more academic questions. <laughs> um, and it took me a while to, to kind of get at least in the background ozone space. Um, but I was really excited when I was at GFGL, when we had a new model that I thought was really going to do a much better a much um, more state-of-the-art job in representing these stratospheric intrusions into the troposphere. We were able to run at a higher resolution and we had stratospheric chemistry. And um, and so I kind of, I, I dove back in later uh, into the into some yeah. of these questions, but...
0: Well, okay, let's get to that in a second. But, I mean, so first of all, this is all, is this all EPA process? These these meetings and battles? E- yeah, involved. this
1: was EPA process, Yeah, yeah. And
0: so, yeah, I think it's a good story you know being a phd student is about becoming an independent researcher and you know that uh, people have similar stories sometimes um when i've talked to people who have done field programs and they get sent in the field and their advisor isn't there and they just have to figure stuff out and they get you know and they're with much older people who have done it lots of times and kind of expect things to go a certain way but on the other hand that things always don't work and break and i think um that these experiences are really good because it gives you a really, and as you say, you got a very deep understanding of what the problems were. And then when later you had an ability to solve them that you didn't have at the moment, you kind of ready for it. You know, I think that I, I, I sort of regret that we don't get to do that enough. Like I feel like maybe my students, I, I don't have enough of a chance to throw them in some hot water situation where they, get their eyes opened a bit to what the real what the outside world you know the, the complexity and difficulty of in which our science lives yeah
1: yeah it's a good thought i think in the air quality space of of my group my students uh probably get a little more opportunity in that sense although um, i feel you know things have evolved too or how, how how processes are done and all of that um but yeah i guess. I guess we could talk a little maybe about this NASA Health and Air Quality Applied Sciences team that I've been part of. Um, Mm -hmm. That is a lot of working with different stakeholder groups that include like state level, um, city level, or federal level air quality managers, um, as well as people now it's expanded to health. So we work with different public health um, groups as well. And so I feel like at least the students that work in that space kind of get exposed to like people who are on the ground having to make decisions and, and the kind of, you know, questions that they have and the types of, you know, even just like data or metrics that, that, that would be useful to them, which aren't always what we can deliver necessarily. But um, so they get a little bit of that like real world exposure. The other sort of thread of my work in my PhD that also, now that I'm thinking about it, I guess I've had a lot of continuity in terms of the the research that that I've done. But one of the really fun like aha moments for me in grad school was we were in some sense doing what you might almost think of as like turn the crank, kind of like let's do a bunch of um, sensitivity simulations, analyze the results and uh, think about whether controlling different... Precursor emissions to ozone are going to be more or more beneficial to climate than others. Mm-hmm. And so there we had run a, a set of sensitivity simulations where we were cutting global anthropogenic emissions by 50% and looking at, um, at different responses. And I remember I was so excited to do like this really thorough detailed JGR paper where we were going to look at, you know, in detail at like US, Europe, Asia, kind of northern mid-latitude perspective. But what was so interesting was that we ran this simulation where – and admittedly, our hypothesis going in was that this one wasn't going to be that interesting. But we had cut um, anthropogenic methane concentrations. can't remember what the exact perturbation was. Maybe we went back to pre-industrial levels. I'm not sure. And – It turned out that I was seeing as large of a surface ozone response to that simulation as I was to, for instance, cutting nitrogen oxide emissions, which is kind of what we think of from a global atmospheric chemistry perspective as like the key precursor to ozone, kind of NOx and Mm -hmm. and, and VOC, volatile organic compounds, basically reactive carbon compounds. And generally, from an air quality perspective, methane is not thought to matter because its lifetime is a decade. So if you're thinking from an urban air quality perspective of like, I want to reduce ozone tomorrow in my city, cutting methane locally is not going to help you, right? But what cutting methane does is reduces the global methane concentration, which the way that I think about it is when that methane eventually oxidizes in the atmosphere and produces ozone in the presence of NOx, nitrogen oxides, Um, it's kind of contributing a little bit to this baseline or if you will, background ozone everywhere. So at first when I saw the results, my initial thought was, oh shoot, I must have messed something up in the run, right? We have a bug. And then I thought about it more and I was like, well, wait, we know that actually methane makes like tropospheric ozone. It's important to the global tropospheric ozone burden. So maybe it is important for surface ozone. And so Again, just sort of the strong moment was like going up to Danielle's office to like show him what I was finding and like you know make my case, and uh, and he got really excited, and so that was that was really great. Mm. And then it turned out that he was at some meeting. Um, I think it was in Hawaii, and it was led by Jim Hansen, and also thinking about kind of air quality, climate, and I don't know exactly what Jim was presenting, but I get this email from Danielle, like, okay, you got to write this up quickly. You, you, we got to get this out. Like, forget JGR. Like, I think you should write this up for science. I was like, what? <laughs> you know? So anyways, right? I, I kind of did. What, what way
0: I, was Hanson talking about that made him have that reaction?
1: I'm not sure. He must have said something about methane and Danielle connected that he was going to get there and we were already there. Okay. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. And so, okay. uh, or maybe it was Drew Chandel who was talking there. Because I mean, Drew ton right. kind of work uh, in this space as well. Yeah. Anyway, so that was my one experience of trying to write something for science. We sent it in. It got rejected without review. So we we submitted to GRL. And it was a GRL paper. And it you know, was highly cited and it was fine. And it, I kind of wish we had just gone for GRL at the beginning. But that's okay. Um, and so... Yeah, so the, the neat part of that was basically pointing out that controlling methane is a win-win for air quality and climate. And then that work ended up being relevant for this intercontinental transport kind of science policy community that I was mentioning was starting to have meetings. And at one of those, I met uh, Jason West, Who's a Mm -hmm. professor now at UNC Chapel Hill? But Jason was a AAAS fellow working with Terry Keating, I think, um, at that time, which is why I guess he was also at that meeting. But he ended up getting excited about doing some like cost benefit analysis of like methane reductions. And so that led to a couple papers that we ended up writing together where he took the model results and then put some dollar values on it and showed that actually maybe you could think of it as a win 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 that, you know, reducing. Methane leakage, right, is good economically, and then also good for for climate and air quality. So I think that's that's like the PhD work and what came kind of spun off from it.
0: What I want to ask about is this connection to policy and impacts. I mean, so you've talked about these EPA processes, and you know, later you got into work that, if I'm not mistaken, had a bit of a, a, an epidemiology character. Some, there's some human health stuff. It's, of course, it's easy to see how this connected to the science you were doing. I mean, it's a science of air pollution, so all these things are relevant. Nonetheless, a scientist coming out of you know academic institutions and remaining in academic institutions has sort of a choice of how much to engage with all this other stuff, getting involved in writing policy documents and assessment reports and thinking about impacts, which requires you to at least collaborate with people that do things you don't understand and You've done a lot of that stuff and um, I'm a big admirer of it, but I just, what I want to know is what your thoughts have been on that as you've gone through it. You know, is it, a, is it an intentionality thing? Is you just get sucked in and it's exciting and you want to do it? Or is it, you know, at some points you think, geez, maybe this isn't worth the time I'm putting into it and there's trade off. I mean, I just, what's your thought processing this to the extent it's conscious or, or it isn't?
1: That's, that's a great question. It's something I've thought a lot about and I feel like I go through cycles You know, I worked, as you mentioned, at at NOAA's Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab for, so I did a year as a postdoc and then seven years as a, I think my title was like physical research scientist. And, you know, there you're, I was a civil servant. I was, you know, part of the government, Um, public service is effectively like the mission. And so there... I thought it was a great match because I was, as much as I said that I was a little scarred for that that sort of meeting and some of my PhD experience, I wanted to feel like the work I was doing was having some sort of effect in terms of, you know, I guess, idealistically, like improving the world we live in, um, in some small way. And so in that sense, I felt like the research scientist track at a government lab was a really excellent fit because it made it so that putting time into these assessment reports that are part of like what the government is producing was like clearly aligned as part of the job. I truly thought that I probably had closed a door to ever going back to academia. And I was conscious of that, but I guess not that concerned about it because I actually, maybe (laughs) I didn't see myself ending up in academia um, at all. It's so funny
0: because I mean, I just have to stop you there. I mean, to me, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, maybe slightly less now than then, but to me, GFDL basically was academia.
1: But I didn't I mean, know I didn't- that, right? I didn't really <laughs> know that. I mean, <laughs> so um, and and I loved that. You know, my group leader was Chip Levy, who was also a star in atmospheric chemistry, and I felt so privileged to get to work with him, and just gave me all this freedom. And so I definitely had the sense that at some point, right? I was at a mission-driven agency, and I was well aware that at some point I could start to really get frustrated if I didn't believe in where the mission was being aligned but mm-hmm. at least for the time I was there I you know it really was academic and that chip was giving me a ton of freedom to do the work that I wanted to do the one thing I will say is travel funding was challenging and as an early career scientist you need to get out there right you need to yeah. you, you need to be be participating and so the again I feel extremely fortunate but I got Incredibly lucky that I got this award that gave me travel, basically gave me um, discretionary funding. And so, because the other thing is that you couldn't have other, like, if I were to come give a talk at Columbia, right? You couldn't pay for me because I'm a civil servant, right, 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 go. right, right. And so, what it meant is that if you invited me to come give a talk, I say yes, and I, I have money. I just pay my own way. I don't have to basically take a trip at the expense of another colleague of mine who then can't travel. Right, right. I think honestly that was huge.
0: This was some internal NOAA award, it or something, was, or
1: what was it? it? Was um, it, actually no, it was um, it was the presidential early career award. Award. Oh, for science.
0: right! Wow, that's a big deal. Yeah,
1: and so and I so for the Department of Commerce, I guess for NOAA, I I was one of the recipients.
0: Yeah, no, that's a big. Uh,
1: yeah, it was really big. exciting. Very few
0: people in the country get that every year.
1: Yeah. It was, it was really a privilege.
0: It is a difference in the federal labs. The travel is much harder. If you're at a university, you know, you, you get a grant and then you can travel and nobody can tell you.
1: Right. The other thing that was going on in my, er, the early years there was the whole question of, could the scientists talk to the media? Did they have to get,
0: like go mm. through this whole
1: approval process first? And
0: Were you doing um, that? Were you talking to the media?
1: Um, I was probably trying to avoid it at that point. So I was kind of like, okay, that's fine. Um, and again, this, this goes back to kind of this whole, you know, ending up in this whirlwind of this policy relevant background thing and just being really, really concerned about saying something that would end up quoted out of context or I, I don't know. And I do do media stuff every now and then, but it's not, it, for me, it's pretty stressful.
0: So being a civil servant, when you got to GFDL, so we're now post PhD, you felt like it was legitimate part of your job to do assessments and policy and all of that. You also had a, a leadership at the lab that was fine with it and yeah. hopefully was bragging about it in the annual reports rather than telling you don't do this, write another three papers or whatever they could have told you. And you were I know you were writing plenty of papers too. So that, that was they weren't worried about that. On some level you must have liked it too, right?
1: Yeah. I mean I guess Part of it was I really enjoyed the scientific community that was part of this. It was especially for the Task Force on Hemispheric Transport of Air Pollution. It was international. You know, I I actually got to go to Moscow in 2006, which was an amazing experience for a meeting there. Yeah. So I I did. I I definitely enjoyed it.
0: It sounds like you got research ideas from it, too, which is the thing I try to. to Important. Yeah. I try to communicate that to people. It's like some people think, Oh, I'm a basic researcher. You know, I don't, they, they don't necessarily want to do things that out, you know, that are more um, mission driven in what in one way or another, but I have found that it's a really good source of ideas because pure research has a way of chasing its own tail. If you're not careful, you do the next thing that's obvious from what you did before. And that can get a little stale was you do these other things. There's so much external stimulus that's right. That at some point you you think of something you see something where you don't know the answer to it and you realize after a while that nobody knows the answer to it and then you realize that you know you could actually do something and so it's a good um, it's a good uh, accompaniment to a basic research job.
1: I, I completely agree, and that's been my experience with this um, NASA Health and Air Quality Applied Sciences team as well. Where I mean, the premise of the team really is that the science is supposed to be emerging from needs voiced by the stakeholder groups and so Mm. many of these stakeholder groups have i mean there's a whole range but there's some who have an enormous amount of technical expertise and just the wisdom of like oh yeah in my region we have our high pollution events on these kinds of days and here's what we typically see and you know we've always wondered about x y or z and so i do feel like there's just been a lot of a lot of i guess co-generation is kind of the term that's used now right of of ideas
0: so you've mentioned this group a couple of times. Maybe I need you to explain to me what it actually is like and how it works and who. Sure. It's a, is it yeah. like you get a grant and you go to where it's a or it's a working it group or it's a. It's
1: a competitively funded. Um, it's like a NASA Roses solicitation. Um, okay. So there's been three renditions of it. Um it started in, I think, I think it was 2011 when the first team like kicked off. So that was the Air Quality Applied Sciences team. And then there's now been two rounds of this mm-hmm. Health and Air Quality Applied Sciences team. And I've been lucky that so far I've hung on as part of, part of this team and it's basically the idea is that like nasa has has put in all of this these taxpayer dollars right to our fleet of um of earth observing satellites and so there's an applied sciences program that's intended to you know bring the power of nasa data to -to day-to-day decision making and so our angle is the health and air quality applications Um, it's a team of i should know how many pis but let's say like a dozen pis and when you propose each PI brings their team. So it's a pretty complex situation because you usually end up with each PI, you know, has a team of some number of, of co um, and then of course they bring like students, postdocs, et cetera. And so I think usually the number I hear thrown around is it's a team of probably like 70 sort of people that are um, mostly academics. Uh, some are at government labs and then you have very close partnerships with these different stakeholder groups. The really neat thing about this the funding model for this team is that first of all when you apply it, the cap is really low. It's really not a big it's not like we're doing this because you get a ton of funds to support your group through the solicitation baseline funds. Right. But then they do set aside additional funding for what are referred to as these tiger teams that are supposed mm. to be fast moving, react like kind of reacting to emerging needs throughout the course of the the grant period. And those are cross team collaborations that also involve different sets of stakeholder groups as well. And so typically the team of this you know dozen PIs, everybody has their own project, and then there's usually four or five of these tiger teams running at a time. And so so there's I think for all of the teams, there's been like two rounds of this extra funding. So it's a lot of time and energy and it it is a lot of like conversations. Like I'm actually leading one of these tiger teams right now. We just came off of a series of I think we had 10 listening sessions with different stakeholder groups and then we're trying to synthesize that and decide, you know, how do we want to target our limited resources to try to have the biggest impact? But yeah, so that's where like I do feel like a lot of co-generation happens, but it is a lot of time and energy. And in some cases, sometimes it does feel a bit like the whole consulting industry is kind of set up to do in a more efficient way as opposed to... Graduate, uh, a sort of academic group with graduate students or postdocs. At the same time, you know, the team is predominantly academics, and it does seem like we're able to get the work done. And I will say that I found the students love this because they yeah. are getting a view into what it's like to work in a whole bunch of different types of air quality or health related positions, whether that's government, nonprofit, uh, industry, different levels of government, or yeah. academic, or I don't know. There's a whole range of organizations out there. And so I I do think that that's a nice opportunity for a grad student to get a window into that.
0: I mean, the consultants are, in some sense, better set up to do it. But on the other hand, academic groups have a different kind of independence because on some level, you don't need the work, right? I mean, as you just said, it's not a lot of money. Right. You're doing this for other reasons. Your main job is to publish papers. Right. So, just your incentives are a little different, and I think the stakeholders get something out of that. Who are the stakeholders? Are these state and local, are these private? Who who are they? are they? Canadian? Yeah, it's what it's a they? whole And who array. finds them? Do you find them? Does NASA management find them? We
1: find them. So we have um we we have. I mean, now of course we have the benefit of like you know I guess over a decade of this team kind of being there. And so I think once you're on the HACAS mailing list, et cetera, like you're, you're on for life, but um, but we have public meetings twice a year that are all structured to interface the team with stakeholders. They're run as like a series of panels where each panel has uh, different groups. But yeah, so so just to give you a sense, like we work with a lot of state air agencies. Um, one of the, I don't know if it's a, a perk or whatever, but I feel like I, I think I'm pretty good with most of the acronyms for the different, <laughs> State air agencies, some of the state health agencies. There's local ones. There's these what are referred to as multi-jurisdictional. So, for instance, in the Northeast, like we work with NESCOM, which is Northeast States for Coordinated Air Use Management Association. New Jersey is actually a neat state mm. because it's in two. It's also in MARAMA, which is like the Mid-Atlantic Regional Organization as well. And so, those are some of some of the groups. But we also, for instance. It's not uncommon for like people from environmental defense or just gotten connected with a new group, Urban Institute, that's kind of like a connector organization of different communities around right, the country. Right. There's um, there's actually a satellite data for environmental justice tiger team that has a whole bunch of community groups that are part of their team, the American Lung Association. Um, it's really NACA, which is, a, right. I shouldn't know what that acronym is, but it's Clean Air Group yeah, so it's it's really a range of. Um, I remember one yeah. of our meetings we had like a a community like mom group I think from Utah who was there that were fighting for clean air in Salt Lake City and okay. Utah. So it was, yeah. yeah. It's, so it's
0: sort of like a mixture of government, state, and local, and nonprofit, and all. Some of them sounds like have some amount of scientific capacity, but yeah. not what not what you're bringing to it. So they I think that's important too because it it's, it seems to me like. One of the challenges of working with stakeholders is they have to sort of know a little bit, at least they have to have some idea what they're dealing with in order to deal with you. Exactly. So there's a finding the right, uh, you know, connections is not always.
1: Right. And that's where I think Haycast has, like, we have some stakeholders who we refer to as like super users, like they are like way beyond, you know, what a. What a graduate student, at least in their first year or two, is is doing. Um, and so what, what HACAS also serves as, I would say, is like a forum for these groups to connect with each other. And so we'll often have, for instance, a stakeholder might run a training session on how they're using data in their agency, in addition to like the HACAS scientist or grad student running a session on like, hey, here's a new way of analyzing the data that we've come up with and you can access it here and that sort of thing it's really a neat community for information sharing. And, but you're right, it's, it's all types. And there are definitely certain stakeholder groups that um, the gap is probably too wide, but if there's another stakeholder group in there or, or, Mm -hmm, you know, somebody mm -hmm. who can help fill it, you know, that's Mm -hmm. kind of the, the idea.
0: So I want to make sure we at least sketch your, the remainder of your trajectory. Um, It probably won't be much more than that, but so GFDL, you're there for eight years. Okay, I wouldn't have remembered that number. I knew it was something of that order between five and 10, I would have guessed. And during that time, my perception is that although you continue to do all this, you got interested in some broader climate issues too, some things that didn't involve air quality or even atmospheric composition. Yes. And then we recruited you to Columbia. Gosh, when did that happen?
1: That was 2011. I moved.
0: 2011. Okay, time flies. And you're here another... 10 years, years. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that part I kind of know, but maybe not even then, not that well, because, you know, your colleagues down the hall, you don't always talk as much as you, you know, I saw you at a lot of faculty meetings, but then went to MIT a couple of years ago. Coming here was the first time you started to have a real group of your own. Is that fair?
1: had like a taste of it at GFDL. Um, and I think that's where I was starting to realize that I would enjoy having a little bit of a larger group. So I, I was able to have like one or two people. And then I had a summer, actually, it was summer 2011, right before I moved, where I had two interns who were amazing. And it was it was really fun. And I, that definitely mm-hmm. got me really excited for for building a group. So at that time, I was a lead author on the Fifth assessment report for the IPCC. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely because I was at GFDL and it was viewed as a good thing for the lab to have people involved. And in fact, I kind of tried not to do it because I was, um, well, I was having a family at that point and travel was challenging. And so it's one of these things where I know if it had been my choice, I would not have applied for it. And yet, from a career perspective, I'm so glad I had that experience. And so it's interesting. And the the reason I'm so glad I had that experience is because I feel like that was part of my, like, enhancing my comfort level of transitioning more into kind of climate and not necessarily having only the atmospheric chemistry piece of what I was doing. And I'm trying to think when that all started. I guess it was probably 2009 to 2011. Because one of the summer interns I had that summer, the reason I'm mentioning this is he was actually running, it's Alex Turner, who's now a professor at University of Washington, but he was an undergraduate at the time at uh, University of Boulder in Colorado. And he was running a storm tracking code, actually, that we got from a colleague at GIS that was in Python. It was my first time with anything in Python to basically track uh, migratory cyclones across uh, the eastern U.S. in summer. And I guess the rationale for that was still tied to air pollution because these were, mm-hmm. you know, no, are known to ventilate pollution. But the questions that we were asking was, how do we think they're going to change under climate change? And it was super exciting because GFDL had done like thousands and thousands of years of simulation with a long. 5,000 year pre-industrial control simulation where you mm-hmm. can just get a sense of the baseline noise in this particular quantity. And then yeah. we had the historical runs, we could look at what's happened over the historical period, and then we had different future simulations. And so Alex was quantifying basically number of storms per summer in some box over kind of the Great Lakes type area of the US and just looking at how those had changed. And so we were very much using methods that I had seen, you know, people like... Tom Delworth and others presenting a group meet or not group meetings but lab meetings um, over the years and I just found this really I guess I've always loved big data sets and so this just seems super exciting <laughs> to me <laughs> just this idea that with with computer programming we can mine through enormous amounts of data and like pull out quantities that that actually tell us something useful about how our system works
0: that was one of your interns in yeah. the last summer at gfdl
1: yeah
0: right so we were here for 10 years and built up a group and were extremely successful and then we lost you a couple of years ago
1: i miss you all yeah
0: um yeah. but you went back home to boston
1: i did
0: has your reconnection with the place been everything you, <laughs> you hoped
1: yeah for? it's it's well. It's been interesting, right? Because I was—I haven't been here for almost two decades, and so it's—it's it's been really. I mean, I came back and visited, of course, but that's not the same. And so it's been really interesting to kind of re recalibrate, I guess, and like sort of see all the development. And I mean, Kendall Square is completely different. Not that I spent much time over there when I was uh, living in Somerville two decades ago, but
0: um, nobody did. Even MIT. But students. it's totally
1: different. <laughs> It's beautiful. It's yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a great place. It's a great place. I, yeah, so I I'm enjoying kind of
0: being. You back live in here. Cambridge.
1: I don't. I, we live out in Belmont. Right. So which is close. I mean, it's a great. It's it's a great location. It's a great community.
0: And so, how old were your kids when you got there? I'm trying to think if they yeah, like so, if yeah, the New yeah. York Boston shift for them at what age yeah. it happens. right?
1: Yeah, so my oldest, um, when we moved, my oldest started high school, so it was ninth, seventh, and fourth grade. So it was, you know, it was a little, not an easy transition. It's not like this was home to the rest of my family. But everybody everybody seems to have landed okay. And uh, you know, now they, they, they love going back to New Jersey and thankfully I guess with well, I don't know, in our day, right, we would have written letters, but they they text or stay in touch that way. So I like to think that maybe their college transition, you know, will be smoother because they've already gone through the, you know, moving and, and making new friends. And the other thing you realize is that there's a lot of kids who move around a lot. And so it's really, really okay. I think the hardest thing was that we thought we were moving post pandemic and actually we moved, we showed up right when the Delta wave was hitting and uh, that turned into Omicron. And so not necessarily the best time to be trying to like make new friends.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And so any new evolutions in your scientific trajectory, any new things you're doing that you want to mention or
1: yeah i've been pretty heavily influenced i guess by um the whole large ensemble community i served for a bit on a u.s Mm. um clivar working group on large ensembles and so we've generated i'm not sure we can quite call it large yet but a historical ensemble from 1950 to 2014 with full stratosphere troposphere chemistry and so we're we're kind of having fun Mining that and trying to adopt some of the techniques, for instance, we've been collaborating with Ben Santer on some of his like signal Mm -hmm. detection and think Mm -hmm. we've actually detected a signal of anthropogenic influence in upper tropospheric ozone columns, uh, so satellite data, which is pretty neat. So I have a student who's writing that up now. And then the other direction is actually in close collaboration with Robert Pincus. At, oh. Uh, yeah, I know. It's a little sad because he started at Lamont the day that I left. Um, really? jeez. Oh, he, he somehow convinced me uh, to start thinking about chemistry on an aqua planet. And so- uh-huh. We're having some fun with that. And I guess at this point, we're still doing some initial things. But it seems to me like it, it could be a really neat tool going forward if you're trying to get some fundamental understanding of like basic climate responses with complex chemistry that's too complex maybe to run in these really more realistic types of, of chemistry climate models. So we'll see where that so goes.
0: So geez, I've never thought of chemistry in an aqua planet. So without so- land things. Yes, be you have pretty, no pretty So
1: right? it's exactly so so actually the way maybe I should back up and just say we're we're really this is really idealized. So the first thing we do is we just in the CSM uh aquaplanet configuration, it turns out amazingly you can flip the switch and have chemistry on. It actually yep. works. Okay. When you do that, though, you still effectively have the chemistry seeing land, right? Your emissions are still there if you don't change them. And so, anyways, so we've done some things now where we're like actually making it more idealistic on the chemistry side. So, doing like zonal average things. One of the things that I think is really nice is that when we're looking at atmospheric, so I sort of mentioned like chemistry on climate, but for the climate on chemistry, is that we always have weather and complicated meteorology and uh, when you're trying to interpret observations. And so I think for just some basic insights as to if you're interested in things like differences between the Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere or differences in gradients and emissions in the aqua planet, we can take out the role of meteorology, right? Because everything is just super simple and symmetric. And so we have an application that one of my postdocs is working on in that direction.
0: So you still have the sources of stuff as if the land was there so you're not on such a different planet as i might have imagined yeah you know if you didn't have that and of course there is still meteorology it's just simpler media i mean the meteorology is doesn't know that you know doesn't have continents and mountains so it's
1: that's right so yeah yeah, so i don't know we'll we'll see where that all goes but you know i think there's obvious like really neat applications to think about too with like planetary atmospheres um i don't know if i'll ever personally go there but i can imagine you know if this can if we can show that this configuration works and you can do science with it i can imagine there are are people who would take it that direction
0: do you want to say anything about the connection of air quality to climate and how that has changed over time, sort of at the global scale. There's always been these connections between air quality and climate, and you've studied them and been involved in the policy at the national level and so on. But I think something that seems to me has changed in the last, I don't know, not that many years is the recognition that, first of all, just how bad air pollution is worldwide. I mean, what the, there's been epidemiological studies and so on that show how many deaths there are from air pollution. You know, today and the numbers are huge, especially in the most polluted places, which is now more Asia than US and Europe, but we have some bad places here too. And the sort of recognition that maybe this is more of an important way to think about climate mitigation than it used to be. In other words, it used to be thought that these are two different problems and air pollution's a local, you know, problem and climate is this global problem. And then there have been these you know, differences in how that plays out politically because of it. But there's now, I, I have this, you know, there's a sense now among a lot of people that are active in climate politically that we should be talking more about air pollution because killing lots of people and it gives a big motivation to stop burning fossil fuels in places where they're emitting both harmful pollutants and greenhouse gases. And just the, that the awareness of this has changed both scientifically and policy-wise or politically. And if that's affected, how you think about these problems or anything you're working on?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great a great point. And actually, I think I'll just call out a few colleagues who have done a lot of what I see as like pioneering work in this space. So, yeah, uh, like Drew Schindel from yes. Duke University, for instance, yes. like thinking about. Yes, I guess. Exactly. Overlapped
0: with you for quite yes, a while. Yes,
1: he did. He did. Yeah. We actually got, got a collaborative grant funded and then he left. Um, yeah. But we still work yeah. together. So that was great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And also Jason West, who I mentioned earlier, like I've done a lot of thinking about co-benefits of, of um, you know, thinking jointly, of controlling for... For climate and, and air quality and quantifying the benefits. And actually, I've just had the the pleasure of working with both of them on a chapter of the National Climate Assessment on mm-hmm. air quality. And so, Jason mm-hmm. and Drew have a, and uh, Rob Pinder at EPA have a section kind of focused on that. That question of, of co-benefits. And then the other thing that I that I wanted to mention is that these numbers of, of globally, how many people are dying because of exposure to air quality, that has really been brought about because of work using a combination of satellite data and models and where available ground-based data to get global coverage of exposure to things like, uh, for instance, fine particles. And I was right. just going to note um, my colleague, uh, Randall Martin, who's now at Washington University of St. Louis, has done has really been a pioneer in the getting global maps of PM two point five space, and mm-hmm. working uh, closely with the health community for that. And so, yeah, in my own work, I feel like I guess you had mentioned at the beginning, and I'm not sure that I that I got back to that, but I, I have enjoyed and have some current collaborations with epidemiologists. Um, yeah. It, so the idea is that you know, can we give our best estimates on what the exposure to different pollutants is. So from that perspective, I feel like I I enjoy working with them, but there's always a little bit of like, they want the data, the finest resolution, et cetera. But like, they don't really need me to do science, right? They just need... Need the data, and and so that's yeah. fine. Like, but we each kind of try to find some science to, to do yes. in in that. And so one of the projects that I'm super excited about that's led by Marianna Kimmortzoglou at the School of Public Health at Columbia. She has a project where she's developed this framework for quantifying uncertainty. And instead of the typical public health study, which says, okay, I have this data set, I'm gonna run it through my exposure response functions, or or sorry, team it with my health data to get my exposure response functions. What if instead I pull together all the different estimates of, you know, for instance, fine particles that we have out there publicly available, try mm-hmm. to come up with some way of estimating their uncertainty and try to use an ensemble approach where I come up with the best estimate and a range of uncertainty um, that's mm-hmm. spatially mm-hmm. allocated. And so there's some issues with that in the sense that, unfortunately, we're really data poor and that a lot of the data sets out there are pulling in all the data that we have already. And so then what do you have right. left? to evaluate uncertainty with. So that is a fundamental problem that has been really bothering me. And I, you know, Mm -hmm. just sort of, I think we just have to acknowledge it and that's where we're at. And ideally Mm -hmm. we can do different things in the future and try to advocate for more independent data sets for evaluation. I've gotten interested, I have a summer, or I have an uh, undergraduate researcher here who's starting to look at co-occurrence of heat um, and two different types of pollution, ozone and these fine particles. And yeah, uh, we have at this point, she's kind of staying true to the observations and looking at, um, co-occurrences and how, how those vary from summer to summer and region to region. And then one of the the next directions that we've been talking about moving is asking the question of, okay, so we have these chemistry climate models that, you know, there are papers out there that use those models to look at how air pollution is going to change in re- in the future under different climate and emission scenarios. But are these kinds of, um, starting to think about, I guess, like compound extremes or co-occurrence, like, are they actually modeled in a way that has anything to do with the real world? And the other Mm -hmm. question that actually I'm learning is still a bit of an open question on the health side is, does it actually matter? Does the human body respond in a different way if it's simultaneously exposed to heat and ozone or heat and PM or all three together? But I don't think we can really answer those questions until we know how often those co-occurrences are are actually happening. And so that was part of our motivation was, can we kind of start to build a data set of these, these events? And maybe it turns out that it doesn't matter, that once you're exposed to one thing, you're sick and that's it. Um, I, I don't know.
0: And I'm guessing you can't do physiological studies. I know they do that with heat. They put people in hot rooms and make them do stuff, but you can't – it'd be unethical to also pump ozone into the room and (laughs) pollute.
1: Well, so to be honest, I know they used to do that because Daniel Jacob talked about – I think he like participated in some of those studies uh, when he was a grad student. Um, I'm sure they're not pumping like super high ozone. (laughs) um, So I don't know. Actually, that's a really – I like that thought. I, I don't know.
0: Well, it's an interesting thing that's happened. I mean, I don't know if you follow this. I mean, we, I, I've gotten a little bit involved with a student here, um, uh, Casey Ivanovich and Radley Horton in, in humid heat extremes. Right. And there, there seems to be a big disconnect between the people who do that, who study the human physiology, who say humidity has a big effect on you. And the epidemiologists who look at statistics who say they don't see it. And I kind of, th- I think from what I've, I'm not an expert on this. I've come to think that the epidemiologists kind of have to be wrong. It has to be that they don't have data in the right places or they can't untangle the effects or something. Cause I mean, the physiological evidence is pretty clear and your own human experience makes you know that it's true. Right. I mean, everybody who's ever lived in a human place knows that. So I mean, yeah, I'm so curious about this interaction between, uh, you know, direct experimentation and
1: interesting point. I should look into that.
0: All right. Well, we've burned your whole morning almost. Um, there's a lot more things I could ask you, but I, I don't think uh, I don't think I can. But is there anything else that we should have talked about that we didn't? Is there anything else you want to mention while we're here? I don't no
1: think so. No more shout so. outs to anybody or <laughs> uh, I don't know. Just thank you for the opportunity and you know, it's 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 really an honor knowing who else you've interviewed. So thanks for thanks for this. Oh no.
0: Oh no. The honor thank you, Arlene, but the honor is all mine and uh, thank you for taking the time to do it. It's great to talk to you.
1: You too.
0: Yeah, so maybe you can tell from that why I wanted to talk to Arlene. She's such a great scientist doing such important and high-impact work. And at the same time, she's so thoughtful and generous. I'm sad that we don't work together anymore to make it about me for a second. And I miss her. But I'm glad that we got to have this conversation and that I can share it with you. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel, And this is Deep Convection.